the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole, and this is episode 12. It's called The Soul and Nature's Universal Politic. Last time, I told you about self-motivation, self-management, and self-empowerment. I explained six principles of motivation, and I exposed a hierarchy of need, from physiological, emotional, and social needs, to psycho-spiritual fulfillment, or what's called the self-actualization needs. I also said that our self-image is affected by the way we understand and satisfy our needs. At any given moment, some of our needs tend to dominate our mind and require us to make decisions and take actions. We must satisfy all our needs or remain unsatisfied. Wisdom offers us two great lessons. If you want to be happy, learn how to satisfy all your needs. If you want to be prosperous, help others satisfy theirs. How we satisfy our needs is a private and personal thing. It's what differentiates us, what makes us unique. In that sense, we are all the same. According to American psychologist Abraham Maslow, we are self-actualizers, or creative leaders devoted to filling our needs. Our thinking is sort of a As long as we're filling needs, and as long as that's predetermined, natural and continuous activity, I should get good at it. Discovering how to fill your needs isn't a sudden knowing, but rather an apprenticeship that includes the realization that you are in a quest for joy, passion, and personal power. Maslow said that even if you are unaware of these needs, if unsatisfied, they'll become a negative force. He said that not actualizing our needs, or needs we aren't even aware of yet, obliges us to suffer as surely as if essential nutrients are missing in our diet. The wisdom says to bring our subconscious needs to the conscious light of day. Only then can we fill them to satisfaction and then be joyful. In his studies on human motivation, Maslow recognized the aspects of human nature that influence motivation and satisfaction. Humans appreciate those things and services that give us pleasure and make life easier and more enjoyable. We also try to avoid pain. It's not really that complicated. If you esteem yourself, you give more value to your experience of life, and then you tend to give life a certain quality. So, strategically speaking, creative self-empowerment begins with the premise, I can add quality to my life. Humans with a healthy ego and a good dose of self-esteem will cut to the quick to pursue their own definitions of the quality of life. 
ego's evolutionary thrust is that we survive and prosper. To do so, we must actualize our true will. We must be directed by nature's imperative to seek out prosperity. So value must be given to our structural capital, our client capital, and our creative capital. Your ego is shaped by how you answer the signals determined by nature's clock. When not developed as a young adult, for example, leadership qualities are difficult to integrate in older managers. Conversely, a bad attitude adopted when you are young can follow you throughout your life and interfere with the development of more profitable attitudes and habits. A bad attitude can sabotage you. Many people think of material pursuits before considering their spiritual development. The benefits of experiencing an attitude that is related to love, joy, and passion is beyond any intellectual debate, but many think that'll come naturally with wealth. As wise people can testify, do what you love and money must follow. The beneficial hormones, neural receptors, and chemical mixes present in your body-mind when you entertain a positive attitude are measurably real. Before an ego can begin to esteem itself sufficiently to release those chemicals, though, it must figure out that the quest for a quality of life requires a shift in paradigms. From being reactive to life circumstances and events to acquiring a proactive state of mind. Being proactive means making conscious choices. In short, wanting a quality of life requires personal growth first. The idea I'm presenting here is that a quality of life is part of the hierarchy of need, which therefore includes growth, spiritual empowerment, and self-actualization. Focused on a quality of life, ego determines how to satisfy his or high higher needs to reach those higher realms. Yourself dictates the needs that your ego must pursue. Ego reacts to a personal inventory of knowledge, experience, and desires, though. Your past contributes to your present, and your present offers you choices about a potential, a future that you do not know. For most of us, our definition of a quality of life is a rather vague concept that resists definition, except from the perspective of personal desire. If I had this, that, or the other, then I'd be happy. Most questions have been answered about the links between our physical health and wealth, between our social conditions and personal well-being, and how these links shape attitudes. Epigenetics is that branch of science which tells us that how we perceive ourselves is the most significant factor in determining whether we can enjoy life or not. Studies have found that things like salary, housing, transportation, and higher education are not main indicators on how life is qualified by a community. Experts are unified in telling us that a quality life depends on personal power, and that intangible is only available to a person as the fruit of his or her labor. Personal power is a result of how you are giving value to your life. Your attainment of a quality of life depends on whether you can transform challenges into opportunities, and if you seize these opportunities, to actualize them. 
The idea of personal power has no objective definition. Rather, it's a term used by sociologists to be a measure of how well we adapt to life's demands. Do you feel lonely or loved? Are you confident or unsure? Strong or weak? Enlightened or ignorant? Angry or joyful? A self-sabotaging ego reacts to what life throws its way, while self-empowered people see in terms of accomplishments. What are those doings and not doings that will awaken my link to my soul? To add quality to life, the wisdom book suggests we practice a tithing culture. That is, just give quality to your life. This makes the quest for quality into something personal. Action brings reaction. You get what you give, what goes around comes around, and all of the rest of the tra-la-la. Tithing means giving. More than the amount you might give to your church, tithing in the larger context means what you are giving to your life. What are you contributing to your life and to the lives of the people who surround you? Think of applying nature's management rule, altruistic self-interest in your community, and ask yourself, where do I give the best of myself? I've met many people who were disappointed with their life without ever bothering to consider what they were giving to it. So many people impose their bad attitudes on a situation to then insist that the situation itself was bad, or they claim that they were ill-treated by others, or were unlucky, instead of giving every situation the best of themselves. People who give love and joy to life can expect to reap those qualities from it, if only in the sense that they are flooding their own body-mind with the hormones and neurotransmitters that make them feel good, better, best. People who only sing a tired Somebody Done Me Wrong song are so busy pointing their fingers at others, they can't begin to know the higher self that they should be esteeming. Invest in your creative capital by seeking out kindred spirits. Build a better world for yourself and those you love. As relationships require work anyway, choose to invest in those people who can add value to your client capital. Subscribe to the idea of good. When everyone gives quality to life, the world will be transformed into paradise on earth. Don't wait. Lead the way. Lead with your example. Impeccability is the process. Power is a result of the process. Realize why it's in your own best interest to create your piece of paradise here and now. The universal politic requires us to transform our life so we add our piece of paradise to the universal mosaic and to help others do it too. Personal power starts when you stop waiting for permission to be happy. Imagine your corner of paradise and then joyfully give yourself to making it come real. If you suppose that others are realizing their own piece of paradise too, you can connect with them. And as we all put our piece of tile into place, then the whole earth mosaic is born from our common effort. And from personal effort, we realize that joyful doing is its own reward. The opposite is also true. Attitudes like anger, pettiness, egoism, ignorance, mean-spiritedness, greed, revenge, and all the rest of those bad feelings are in fact antisocial, and they will continue to cause harm. People who bank on material goods for happiness, in example, are not giving their inner dimensions much consideration. 
They are thus sabotaging their own quality of life. It'll take an awful lot of material wealth to satiate a warped ego. Don't expect fulfillment to come from material things. Joy is an emotional state that has little to do with things. If there is one thing that we do know, it is this. Unless we love one another, we will never see the promised land. People who do not give quality to their physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, creative, and transactional needs can't hope to be satisfied. The laws of motivation tell us that we will remain unsatisfied if we don't take responsibility for giving the best of ourselves to attain well-being. The actualization of yourself requires that you connect to your God essence, to your soul, to the source. In many religions and philosophical traditions, the soul is said to be the non-physical essence of living beings. It is the domain of reason, of character, of feelings. Linked to energy and consciousness, the soul is that aspect of ourselves that is considered immortal. Greek philosophers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle thought that the soul included our faculty to understand ourselves. They believed that the most divine of human traits. Judaism and certain Christian denominations believe that only human beings have an immortal soul. This in contrast to theologian Thomas Aquinas, who argued that all living organisms have a soul, with the precision that only human souls are immortal. Eastern traditions suggest that all living things, from the smallest bacterium to the largest mammal, have an immortal soul because we are all linked to the divine at the subatomic level, where matter becomes energy. What about you? Are you aware of yourself as a soul? Are you developing the human qualities that are required to be happy? Do you see yourself identifying with yourself as a soul? Can you see how that will ultimately determine your satisfaction in life and any promise of an afterlife? Heavy questions, think about them, and I'll be right back. Psychologists have described the universal I am. They say it is the human body and it's an emotional and intellectual potential, including its soul. Soul here is viewed as the author of action, while ego is its mediating agent, its physical identity. I am is that part of me who saw my physical body from an out-of-body perspective when I was thought dead by everyone out there. I continued. A metaphysical me became aware that I am more than a physical me. In fact, in that sudden moment, I realized that I am spirit with a body. This inner awareness of me being a soul with a body versus seeing myself as a body in the hopes that I have a soul changed everything in my mind. Soul is the real me. I am soul even if ego sees me as a body-mind. Ego is my conscious self, but the soul links me to my subconscious and pre-conscious self as well. Soul links me to the superconscious creator, the primal energy, 
indivisibly. I am not either or, a body or a soul. I am both, a body slash soul. Nearly 100 years ago, William James, the pioneer of modern psychological research, urged us to open ourselves to the infinite possibilities that are part and parcel of our human heritage. He said that if we develop spiritual discipline, deeper knowledge and communication with angels will follow. James wrote about the psycho-spiritual powers available to anyone with spiritual discipline. He said, I speak not merely of those savage priests and prophets whose followers regard the automatic utterances and actions as by themselves tantamount to inspiration. I speak of leaders of Christian thought, the whole array of saints, including the greatest, the Bernards, the Loyolas, the Luthers, the Foxes, and the Wesleys. Each had his visions, voices, rap conditions, guiding impressions, and openings to the divine. Abraham Maslow also addressed this theme, suggesting that we can realize our spiritual potential if we listen to our inner voice. He said that while the ego can't recognize its own potential, it does see that I can become my true, better, happier, and more creatively empowered self if I seriously work at it. Maslow also said that anyone who undertakes this work must first do away with the need to bask in the good opinion of others. We must resist the urge to measure ourselves through the eyes of other people and their beliefs. Philosophy and religion offer many descriptions of our true self, but your empowered life has little to do with the opinions of those others. However way you see it, most will agree that your sense of self is a distinct from your physical body and its ego mind. Your true nature, or soul, is the link you make to your creative origin. It is you, but as an ultimate spirit, a universal energy. Describe your soul as a universal energy and claim your divine identity. Ancient sages suggested that we are indivisibly linked to creator, and today quantum physics can prove it. As a matter of fact, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and online streaming kind of show us that every day. Either way, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and then every part is indivisibly bound to that whole and an integral part of it. Buckminster Fuller, author of Principles of Synergy in Nature, thought a creative intelligence, a superconsciousness, permeates all of existence, and it can be seen as the gift of the soul that links us to God. He described God as the great architect, believing that infinity includes the potential for success and happiness for everyone on earth. If Fuller is right, the price we are paying for our self-sabotage is very expensive. If you do not enjoy the quality of life that you deserve, open yourself to the unknown. Grow. Claim your soul. Personal growth determines the quality of life you can inherit so devise a strategic plan to develop the qualities you need to self-empower. Personal power refers to your psychic development. The notion that we only use 10% of our brain isn't quite right. We use all of our brain, but only a small portion of our mind. Not doing the first works 
we cannot hope to acquire the spiritual discipline that links us to superconsciousness. In seminars and conferences, I describe our psyche as that part of the mind which links us to a higher self. Body and mind are, of course, indivisibly linked, but developing your psyche is waking up that part of you that explores the link. To inherit the realization that I am universal energy, I am superconsciousness, you must practice a psychic culture. I've explained how we could practice what we'd like to become. I also discuss various ways of focusing attention on developing our creative capital. It's easy enough to think that you can improve your tennis game by hitting balls. In that same sense, you can become a creative leader by developing the skills that result with that. It's kind of simple. A person who wants to be a great musician must practice linking the neural pathways in his or her brain that will allow him to play music. The brain is a self-organizing system, and as new neural circuits are repeated, they form neural pathways, and then superhighways of information. Practice soon becomes habit, and then music is produced naturally, and then creatively. When your ego becomes more conscious of the codes and language linked to your spiritual self, you can become better and answer the challenges of your life. There are no quick fixes, there is no free lunch, and there's no head transplant. But practice does make perfect. So, who will you become? What spiritual skills and disciplines will you practice? How will you develop your creative capital? How will you link to superconsciousness? What you can't imagine in here won't appear out there. Magic is the art of causing change to occur in conjunction with your true will. Causing change to occur, not hoping for it, not praying for it, causing it. Personal growth will transform an ordinary existence into a magical one. The reactive mind can't see the possibilities that present themselves when you are a proactive force and then a creative leader. The creative mind will easily see possibilities that exist by being in harmony with creative spirit. In that state of grace, your paradigm shift is from being reactive to seeing the world in a creative way, in an empowered way. The Bhagavad Gita tells us that personal growth requires us to respect three conditions. The first is to act without focusing on the results of our actions. Doing something, while focus on its results, limits the energy that is needed to give whatever you are doing the full attention that it merits. When fully given to the joy of doing, the act itself gives you something. It sharpens your judgment and increases your self-esteem. Being more aware, you'll notice the causes that precede results, and then you can exercise greater influence over the events in your life. You can act on causes rather than react by hoping for results. The second condition in a personal growth strategy is to act in the name of creative spirit. In other words, surrender to the idea of good, unconditional love. Love without condition lets you identify with the creative process as it works through you. The Greek words entheos give us enthusiasm, which means being with God. 
If that makes you ready for whatever the world can throw at you. Unconditional love, of course, includes self-love, so the feedback you receive from your inner dimensions will advise you to any adjustments that might be needed. One of the great advantages of acting out of love is it makes it very easy to spot those who aren't. After you embrace the process of personal growth, the third condition is that you will do your impeccable best. In this way, the ancients thought, you will have no regrets when you look back. Even if the results of your doings are not what you expected or what you particularly wanted, there will be an outcome, a lesson, and a satisfaction to be had. Those three conditions explain process orientation. Contrary to results orientation, which is a false premise, survival strategies favor process orientation. The problem with results orientation is that, over time, there is no guarantee you will reach a desired result. In that case, the process and its methods become an end in themselves. How we did it is what we did. Process orientation suggests that if we plan an impeccable strategy and apply it in an impeccable way, action-reaction law says it must yield impeccable results. Take that as a paradigm shift. An impeccable process gives impeccable results. This should figure in every aspect of creative management because it assures success, naturally. Large numbers of people, each a prisoner of his or her own mind, stop dreaming about what they'd like to be when they grow up as soon as they accepted that first paycheck. A lot of folks sold out their potential for a pot of beans. Consequently, they resist personal growth and self-empowerment and thus impose their God-given right to react to life, to be petty and childish, and they impose this on their family and friends and others. Well, aware of it or not, even they cannot break evolution's law, but they can break themselves against it. Asserting your right to self-destruct is an ignorant excuse championed by stupid people. So let me ask you this. Do you live by the golden rule or are you a slave to the rule of gold? Are you everything that you can be? Is your life all about your spiritual growth, about your self-empowerment? We reap what we sow, the wisdom books warn us. Action-reaction is a universal law. Karma says that a lack of motivation and the refusal to grow are tantamount to self-sabotage. It's time to change. COVID-19's turbulent effect on the job market in the last couple of years has forced many people out of their comfort zones and onto the path of self-questioning and personal growth. Do your spiritual beliefs help you rise above your limits? Are you awakening to your creative inner self? Do you realize that creativity is willfully applied as magic? Are you a happier, more powerful person? William Jane suggested that our most important transformation comes from discovering how a simple change of attitude can transform our whole life. That change is the paradigm shift that comes from taking total responsibility for your life. Because once you recognize that you have spiritual potential, well then you must actualize it. Self-actualizers are those human beings who invest in their creative capital. 
you invest in your creative capital by realizing that you are the only one who can give yourself physical health and vital energy, who can maintain the relationships that will enrich you, who can esteem yourself enough to commit to the changes that you know will improve your life. You are the author of your life's happiness, so you must create your own version of a paradise on earth. The amazing thing is that your best possible life and the worst existence possible will take exactly the same amount of time and exactly the same amount of energy. Your life's experience takes all of your time and all of your energy. That said, why not invest in glory? Why not invest in self-mastery? Each of us alive on earth today is sharing the experience in some real sense, and so we must manage ourselves as if we are affecting the whole system. If you haven't yet adopted an attitude or a mindset with that degree of responsibility for your existence, take it to be your first challenge. Be proactive about saving the earth, because if you choose to believe that you don't have any control over your life, that choice will contradict the notion. If you act on your beliefs, apathy and fake news, in fact, that becomes your creating destiny. Beliefs compel doings and not doings. If we believe we can, we can. And if we believe we can't, well then we can't, so why even try? The fact of the matter is the object of your beliefs doesn't matter. What matters is believing. If you believe you can, that doesn't mean you can, but it does mean you get to try, to see what results you get. And then if you adjust and try again, given sufficient time and sufficient adjustment, you most probably can, and you might. You can fill your self-actualization needs by practicing a spiritual culture. By this I mean by developing your inner spirit. Developing greater spiritual strength will let your body-mind respond in more wondrous ways. You can make choices that really benefit you. The spiritual culture of a person who is habitually aggressive, for example, should include doing whatever is needed to gain a measure of control over his or her anger. Self-empowerment tools and techniques like the body-mind disciplines of yoga or tai chi are good ways to build powerful and magical thinking. They help hone your subjective will and align it with a creative intent. If you don't take responsibility for life, you cannot hope to manage and control your creative intent. Some people may believe they'll find inner values by becoming familiar with the right words, concepts, or philosophies, but that is not the way. There are no exemptions. Each of us needs to take the actions that can add value to our life. Praying or meditating that a personal God will somehow bend the law to solve your problems while you're only stalling and waiting, and then you'll discover that, yes indeed, things can get worse. Prayer is a poor substitute for action. And besides that, considering that wisdom asserts how heaven will only help those who help themselves, it's kind of spiritually lazy. Based on some of the questions I've asked so far, have you recognized any resistance that might be self-sabotaging you? If you feel that resistance, a learned rabbi named Hillel the Elder suggests we just ask ourselves two serious questions as we examine our need for concrete action in life. If not me, who? If not now, when? 
in large measure, beliefs have shaped how we think and how we can think. If your beliefs aren't really contributing to your empowerment, change them. I'm willing to bet most of your beliefs were force-fed on you before you even knew how to believe. Well then, you can paradigm shift. You can choose a more rewarding path. Think about it. I'll be right back. Managing our common future is the greatest challenge we face. Climate change, mass migration, social and financial injustice, pollution, deforestation, these are only a few of the problems that we must immediately attend to. We have all the tools we need to manage ourselves well, though. In episode six of this podcast, called From My Toolbox, I explain some important ones. So the real question is really, do we have the political will to take up the challenge? In episodes 9 and 10 of the podcast, called Five Sacred Arts, Parts 1 and 2, I explain skills we can develop to master five roles of a strategic leader. I also explained a study by Professor Carlo M. Sapoya of the University of California, who describes what he called the greatest threat facing humanity today. He detailed that threat as the danger posed by human stupidity. Professor Sapoya's study examines human behavior from three perspectives. One, good people who generally act with altruistic self-interest, my brother as myself. Two, bad people who generally act in their own selfish interest first, even if it's to the detriment of others. Me first and fuck you. And three, stupid people who generally act to the detriment of others, even if it's to their own detriment as well. Their thinking is motivated by, I don't care, as long as it's not you. Sapoya reveals an important fact in his study. He tells us, at any point, we are surrounded by more stupid people than we imagine. The professor's study gives all the details of why stupid people are the most dangerous threat we face, so I'll put a link to his Basic Laws of Stupidity webpage with a description to this podcast. For today, though, let's just recognize the wisdom according to Forrest Gump, who taught us that stupid is as stupid does. I hope you suppose that not everyone is working for the common good. The political will needed to right the global woes we face, to fix what is broken, to adjust what is corrupted, depends on a minority of people. The very old and very young members of society cannot contribute much. Neither can the disabled, the sick, the weak members. Bad people aren't working for the common good, and neither are stupid people, and there are more of them than we dare to imagine. That leaves good people to do the real work. If good people were free to implement the changes that are required to make things right, the job would be relatively easy. Wisdom in the good book tells us that 10 good men or women can change the world. I suppose that the first thing they do is negotiate a unified front. Good people aren't free to do that in what is required today, though. 
They must exchange ideas with the bad and stupid people that surround them to arrive at strategies and plans. This is difficult to do because the true motivation of bad and stupid people is obscured. The traits that make a person behave in like a criminal or a moron are irrespective from any other human trait. Sapoya says, the probability that a person will be bad or stupid is independent of any other characteristic of that person. So how do you recognize bad people so you can avoid them? Well, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So here are 10 signs to watch out for so you can stay clear of the crooks in your community. One, bad people take pleasure from other people's misfortune. When someone hurts him or herself, bad people laugh. If there's bad news on TV, they'll get out the popcorn. This strange reaction to people's misfortune is known as schadenfreude in Germany, and it's defined by psychologists as the joy and smug satisfaction some people get from contemplating the misfortune of others. It's juvenile. It's slip-on-a-banana-peel kind of humor. Two, bad people make you feel weird. Bad people don't have your best interests at heart, so they give off a strange vibe. When the vibe is strong, your intuition kicks in and tells you to get out. Whenever something feels off or makes you feel uncomfortable, trust your gut. You'll most often find that the best thing to do was leave. Intuition is a powerful force that should never be ignored, but you have to learn to trust your inner connections. Three, bad people use humor to insult you. There's nothing funny about being bullied, and yet bad people tend to use humor to knock others down. Think of all those movie bullies who get the whole school laughing by making someone the brunt of their joke. Not cool. Bad. Four, bad people lie. A lot. We all tell white lies. Why we're late for work, why we are too busy to hang out. It's usually no big deal. But bad people take lying to the next level by engaging in expert manipulation tactics. They might, for example, pretend to be super truthful as a way of building trust. Then they unleash the slurry of lies that get their way. Think of a Bernie Madoff of Ponzi scheme fame, for example. Five, bad people belittle your fears. Keep an eye out for people who turn your worries into a joke. If you need comfort, real friends don't mock your concerns. Bullies do. There are many reasons why we bully others, and the chief of them is a need to feel superior to them. Sometimes this stems from a childhood trauma or a poor home life. Bullies suffer from low self-esteem because they were most often bullied themselves, and that insecurity creates mental health issues for them. Six, bad people are cruel. Many evil people are sly about it, but some choose to be outwardly violent and cruel. This can be in the form of physically hurting others, and that extends from animals to mass murder, or inflicting emotional hurt. Bad people are often victims of their own backgrounds, so they cause pain to others to dull in the pain they feel themselves. 
If you're with someone who expresses him or herself in violent ways, get away as fast as you can. One day he or she will push cruelty too far and do some serious damage. Seven, bad people don't feel guilt or remorse. Bad people are so used to being bad, they no longer have a natural aversion to it or feel remorse because of it. Cold-hearted sorry never comes to mind. A bad person's brain simply lacks the circuitry to process love as a selfless emotion. Their callousness allows them to betray people, to threaten them, or to harm them without giving it much thought. Eight, bad people have little empathy. A person who hurts animals or lies to friends for personal gain is a person who lacks empathy. This is the ability to feel another person's emotions. The lack ties in with that lack of remorse, and then it gets quite scary. Think of a Ted Bundy, for example. Women thought he was a real charmer. Nine, bad people are racist and or sexist. Racism and sexism are separate issues, but the topic is here is how these empower bad people. Both of those notions are linked to the idea that everyone is equal. And for bad people, that is not okay. Bad people have a narcissistic trait that allows them to think that they are somehow better than the rest of us. They therefore want to destroy threats to that notion. 10. Bad people manipulate others. Bad people are just as capable of showing kindness as they do malevolent behavior. What sets bad people apart, though, is the price that must be paid for their kindness. They are kind because they want to get something from it. Money, subservience, loyalty, or more. Make it clear that kindness does not come with a price tag. Altruistic people don't need motivation to do the right thing or to be kind to one another. It's part of our makeup. Good people are kind without expecting anything in return. There are many reasons that people act badly. They may suffer from a trauma or be struggling with a mental deficiency or an illness, or they might otherwise be broken individuals. The question becomes, how bad is bad? What will you endure? How many traits from this list do the people who surround you have? How many do you have? An important fact is that only 10% of people are bad for the sake of being bad. A far more dangerous group are the countless numbers who are just stupid. Dr. Sapoya's study shows that stupid people are not only the most dangerous, they cost society a lot more. So how do we recognize stupid people? Again, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Here are 10 signs to watch out for so you avoid getting caught up by the stupidity that is running free in your community. One, stupid people dress inappropriately. They'll wear Megadeth or Mickey Mouse t-shirts to a funeral or sport vulgar tattoos. They believe the dress coat is business casual but wear frayed jeans and a hoodie. They most often dress to create a look or to copy a hero. They wear flimsy garments in the cold of winter and strip down to next to nothing to escape the heat of summer. They have no clue about making a good impression. Avoid making this mistake about your own life. 
Learn the dress codes for every situation and follow them. Don't overdress either. What it might seem okay to show up in a low-cut cocktail dress or a tailored tuxedo, it's hardly appropriate if everyone else is wearing sweats or shorts at a company barbecue. Learning the dress code lets you avoid looking less intelligent than the people who surround you. Two, stupid people have poor posture. If you want people to take you seriously, you need to take yourself seriously. That means you must present yourself as a serious person by adopting a posture that says you are both professional and approachable. In easy terms, don't slouch. Sit up straight. Make sure your feet are planted firmly on the ground and don't slump over a desk. If you are in a meeting, be sure to keep your hands in front of you so you don't cross your arms, which makes you look closed off. Even if you work at home, get dressed and sit at a desk. Soon you'll notice that it makes a difference in your approach to work and how you see yourself in life. Three, stupid people pretend to agree. They show agreement or appear to endorse ideas even if they have no intention of acting on them. Did you know that repeatedly nodding your head is a sign that you aren't listening? Women are especially good at it. They'll tilt their heads to one side and nod a lot. Unfortunately, it makes them, as well as men who do it, look less intelligent. It looks like you're trying to understand what is being said, so the body language does not translate so well. A CEO will see this as submissive behavior when they expect leaders to be assertive. Four, stupid people do not care. Their response to being informed of the consequences of their doings or of their thinking is usually, I don't care, so then they can't learn from their mistakes. They take no responsibility for their lives and their life decisions. And this, as the most important attribute we possess, Stupid people will then feel powerless because the reality is that we are in fact responsible for everything that happens to us, including our happiness or misery, our success or failure, our good acts or bad, and only we can pick up and overcome the challenges. Not caring should not be an option. I'll share with you that taking responsibility for the car accident that transformed my own life was the key decision that allowed me to empower myself. When I was 29 years old, I was stuck in a hopeless cycle and had no idea how to get out of it. I lived my life like a stupid person. So my ultimate solution was to hit a pole at 70 miles an hour. I learned two things in that experience. One, it hurt like hell. Two, it made everything worse. I needed a new way of seeing. I stamped out my victim thinking and took complete responsibility for my life and everything in it, from my daily survival to my relationship with the divine. Fast forward today, and even if severely handicapped, or maybe because of it, I've been able to help thousands of people make radical shifts in their own lives. Because we transform life by taking complete ownership for it, you've got to be stupid to not do that. Five, Stupid people misuse vocabulary. They aren't sure about the meaning of words or the proper way to pronounce them, but that doesn't stop them from using them and adding them to their own vocabulary. Nothing makes you look less intelligent than using words in the improper context. 
Using slang or slurs in a business setting also makes you look less intelligent, especially if people don't understand the slang you use or disagree with your slurs. To avoid looking stupid, use words you know and consciously expand your vocabulary by referring to a good dictionary. You can build your credibility by having good communication skills. Six, stupid people undermine the opinions of others. The less intelligent will add a qualifier to every sentence that an intelligent person might say. Most people love to express their opinions, but many stupid people are timid or have had bad experiences, so they rather add useless extra bits to the opinions of others or finish sentences that they hear as they think this makes them appear more intelligent. For example, you might offer an opinion like, I think we should, whatever, but after you've expressed your idea, they'll undermine it by adding, I'm not sure about that because, and then they'll cite any perceived flaw. They've undercut your position and caused people to ignore or neglect your intelligent opinions. Seven, stupid people are very judgmental. Quickly jumping to conclusions is a sure sign of stupidity. They are hard and fast in their beliefs and not open to suggestions or learning new things. People who are closed are considered less intelligent than those who are open to the opinions of others. Eight, stupid people have addictive personalities. It might have been okay to smoke cigarettes in the 1990s, but since then we've known that it causes cancer and many respiratory diseases, so it's not a smart idea. In fact, most people are turned off by smokers, alcoholics, and druggies now more than ever before. This stems from our subconscious absorption of the information that tells us that addiction is bad for us, and if it's bad, an intelligent person would not do it. Nine, stupid people brag about silly things. Stupid people believe that they are superior to others. They have an exalted opinion of themselves and their accomplishments. Everything they have and everything they do is somehow better than you. As they are too stupid to realize how they are perceived, they have no self-esteem and so want others to envy them. 10. Stupid people fawn over celebrities. If you want to avoid looking stupid, don't idolize people who are celebrities. If you talk, act, dress, or otherwise imitate someone famous, people will call you on it. Play down your obsession with the Kardashians or whoever else. The latest haircut is already out of fashion. In conclusion, we've all felt a twinge of shame when we did something we are less than proud of. We felt the sting of guilt when we said something less than appropriate or when we behaved in a boorish way. I wouldn't worry if a person had one or two of the traits on those lists. I'd raise an eyebrow if he or she had three or four, though and I'd be very watchful of people who have several traits from both lists. I remember reading a book called The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, so I suppose there are people who are both bad and stupid. But we can glean wisdom from Forrest Gump's experience in that we know the best way to avoid being stupid is to not do stupid things. It's plain and simple. You'll avoid being a crook if you consider others too. The successful transformation of the world will only happen because good people put the needs of the planet ahead of their own.
good people must take responsibility for actualizing Creator's intent that we be the planet's caretakers, locally and globally. For some, that's easier said than done. But if we avoid doing the things mentioned that signal a bad person, or the ten clues to spotting a stupid person, then we won't feel like a loser when people aren't looking. Other than avoiding bad and stupid actions, you can devote your life to being good. Hold fast to the golden rule, unconditionally, and then let God sort it out. The words, concepts, and ideas used to describe our relationship to the world contribute to how we perceive the quality of our life, how we view our responsibilities, and how we respond to the need for spiritual growth. Helen Keller, a famous author who spent all but the first 18 months of her life without her sight and hearing, wrote of having no way to connect her inner reality to the outside world until she was taught sign language by Anne Sullivan, a 20-year-old teacher. Before that, Keller was lost in her mind. After, she could trade ideas with others and thereby develop the cognitive abilities that allow a sense of self to develop. And only then were self-esteem, adjustment, and growth a possibility for her. She now had the ability to choose her beliefs and to influence her circumstances. A still very deaf and blind Helen Keller graduated from Radcliffe College with honors in 1904. You can choose to explore insight and wisdom within an expansive philosophy or continue to listen to fake news, half-truths, and repressive poppycock that promise you pie in the sky after you die. You can actualize yourself or listen to others. You can learn from the forces in nature or read the Bible or use a Ouija board. The decision to believe or not is tantamount to an act of power. So is deciding how to believe in your God. Whatever you decide, the universe doesn't care. What does matter is believing itself. We must believe in something, be it science or God or both. If you choose to disbelieve, you court disaster. The sorcerer Don Juan Matus tells anthropologist Carlos Castaneda, if you choose to believe nothing, you are playing Russian roulette. He goes on to explain that we profit from believing everything and following the path of our heart. The important thing is to put the love of life first and foremost in your mind so you can make the most of every decision and physical effort. Don Juan said, Everything you believe is one of a million paths. Always keep in mind that a path is only a path. If you feel you should not follow it, you must not stay on it under any conditions. To have such clarity, you must lead a disciplined life. Only then will you know that any path is only a path, and therefore there is no affront to drop it if that is what your heart tells you to do. He says we benefit by choosing what to believe, adding, there is power in making sure you enjoy everything to the fullest degree, because we are alive on this earth for such a very short time. Bringing conscious choice to what we believe is a strategy aimed at silencing our inner dialogue. The dialogue is composed of those thoughts we use to describe the world to ourselves. We can stop our inner dialogue at any moment and choose to offset the reactions imposed by it. We can challenge it. 
we can ask ourselves, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And how will I get there? Self-actualizing people structure and contemplate their decisions. They consciously choose how to invest their energy to then realize what actions will help them. In so doing, they break away from the world of belief and reaction to participate in a world of creation and magic. Their reactive mind believes it has little choice about how to see the world until it recognizes that most of its choices are habitual reactions on a senseless path. You react because you are unaware that taking a leadership role in your life gives you a large measure of responsibility for your every choice. People who are creative focus on the process, on the very way they think and behave. They realize how the universal action-reaction law obliges them to an impeccable process if they want to reap impeccable results. Are you aware that you need to change your mind to improve your life? I'll conclude by asking you these final questions. Are you aware of the need to change your mind in order to improve your life? Are you aware of the power that your habits have over you? What kind of behavior can you adopt to assure that you reach your objectives and your goals? Think about it. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time in episode 13 titled, How Nature Manages Change. The universe is managing a process of continuous transformation by simultaneously managing three regimes. I'll tell you how its chaos regime, its transition regime, and its ordered regime assemble different realities. Don't miss that show. Folks, a listener wrote me to say she gets a lot from my podcast when she reads an episode transcript while I'm explaining things. She said the new ideas are easier for her to learn that way. If you want to try her learning technique, download a free copy of this episode's transcript from my website at www.thejungletimes.com. If you enjoy the Jungle Times podcast, please give it a positive review. Subscribe to my channel and tell your friends about it. If you didn't like it, please write and tell me why not. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. Adios, amigos. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Thank you.